I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. A most extraordinary and startling change passed over her. Her face at all ordinary times so touching to look at, in its nervous sensitiveness, weakness and uncertainty, became suddenly darkened by an expression of maniacally intense hatred and fear, which communicated a wild, unnatural force to every feature. Her eyes dilated in the dim evening light, like the eyes of a wild animal. She said, I'll haunt you every day of your life and your offspring. And that's where I think this story maybe originated. Can you imagine being alone here? It must have been incredibly isolating and just must do things to your imagination. This is the story of what a woman's patience can endure and what a man's resolution can achieve. That's the opening line of The Woman in White by Wilkie Collins, a psychological thriller, a detective mystery, and a nail-biting romance. When it first appeared in 1859, it was immediately spectacularly popular. Babies were named after the heroes, and pets were named after the villains. It spawned all kinds of merchandise, including woman in white cloaks, bonnets, perfumes and waltzes, and yet the issues it raises around mental health, women's rights and domestic abuse remain hauntingly relevant today. Hello and welcome to On the Road with Penguin Classics, the podcast that takes a stroll around the world's favourite books. I'm Henry Elliott, the author of the Penguin Classics book, and in these episodes I'll be exploring extraordinary literary locations in the company of remarkable readers. This time we head to the bleak and windswept Cumbrian coastline in the northwest of England, where Collins was inspired to write The Woman in White. I'm on an express train heading north from... London Euston to Carlisle. We've already passed Lancaster and looking out the window I can see the landscape's already changed. It's become much wilder and more rugged. We're not far from the Lake District here and just like Walter Hartwright I'm heading north to Cumbria and I'm 
thrilled to be joined on this trip by the actress Olivia Finnell. Hi, hi Olivia. Hi, Henry. Hello. And you may well have seen Olivia on stage at the National Theatre in London, where she uh, starred in Othello as Desdemona. She was Cordelia in King Lear, and she was in Tom Stoppard's The Hard Problem. She's also appeared many times on the screen, and she starred in the 2018 BBC adaptation of The Woman in White as The Woman in White. You played you play two characters in that adaptation. You were Laura Fairley and Anne Catherick. When did you first come across Wilkie Collins? Did you know him before you came to make the series? I had read The Moonstone when I was at school, but I'd never read The Woman in White before. So when it came to audition for the part and read the sides, I was kind of captivated from those. And then I then read the novel and it was just from first to last, I was gripped. I I found it so thrilling. I was so excited to be part of it. it. It's amazing how exciting it still is 150 years later it really it's, it's a genuine page turner isn't Absolutely. it you can't wait to find out what happens i wasn't expecting to feel that way when i read it i thought oh this looks really long and what's going to happen and then I, I just honestly couldn't couldn't put it down walter travels up to carlisle and then moves on to a branch line train he says My travelling instructions directed me to go to Carlisle and then to diverge by a branch railway which ran in the direction of the coast. So we'll do the same thing, get on this little train. This is the Ship Hotel in Allenby on the coast of Cumbria. And we've come here because this is where Wilkie Collins and Charles Dickens stayed when they were on a trip around the north of England. And where it's where we think Wilkie Collins was inspired to write The Woman in White. Mm. And then over here, they've got a copy of the actual bill that Dickens and Collins signed when they were staying here. Look, mm. um, it's got a list of everything they ate and drank while they were here. Yeah, so it looks like they stayed here three nights, 9th, 10th and 11th. And on the 9th, they had lunch with beer, wine and whiskey. And then dinner <laughs> with lunch. tea and brandy and lemonade. Sounds quite uh, good. Oh my goodness. Uh, so, hefty yes. amount of alcohol being yeah. consumed. And, oh yeah, and on the 10th, they had lemonade and port. I wonder if one of them was having lemonade and the other was having uh, It brandy. seems like that, yeah. One, one of, of them, them was, was abstaining and then... Keeping it, <laughs> yes, keeping it together. Um, So they were here in September 1857, and then they wrote an account of their tour around the north of England, which they called the Lazy Tour of Two Idle Apprentices, (laughs) which they published in a few installments the next month in October 1857. Uh But then it wasn't till November 1859, so two years later, that the first installment of The Woman in White was published. So you can sort of see the germ of it starting here. Mm. Liv, if, if this isn't too much to ask, would you perhaps set up The Woman in White? Like, what, what's this book about? Oh, how oh, well, so much <laughs> yeah. happens in the novel. But, um, well, it begins with uh, Walter Hartwright, who's been offered a job teaching two young pupils at Limeridge in uh, Cumberland at the house of Mr Fairley. Uh-huh. So he's really excited because it's a prospect of money and a new job outside of London where he hasn't been. And so the story unravels around Walter's 
chance meeting with a mysterious woman mm. um, when he's walking through London one evening. And when he arrives to work with the two ladies, Marion Holcomb and Laura Fairley, who are half-sisters, and mm -hmm. Mr. Fairley is their uncle who owns Limeridge. Uh, they have the same mother but had different fathers, but they're both orphans. And he notices a likeness between Laura and this woman that he's met on the heath. And a very intriguing and perplexing mystery unravels. And we're guided through that through uh, excerpts from Marion's diary and Walter's diary and these first-person uh, narrative accounts. That's one of the most uh, interesting aspects of a book, I think, is how it's told to us from lots of different points of view. Mm. But I, I think what is unique is the way he treats it a bit like the evidence you'd put in front of a judge in a legal case. And so it's almost like gathering evidence from lots of different first-person witnesses and laying them out to present the most persuasive, truthful mm. case that he can. And evidence and the legalities are such a huge part yes. of the novel as well. He has such an understanding of the legal system. Yeah, he, d he did actually train as a lawyer at Lincoln's Inn, although I don't think he ever practiced, but he had that legal background. And you can really see that coming in throughout the book, can't you? That sort of a kind of obsession with the minutiae of the law and kind of both a respect for it and also a, a sense that the law can only go so far. And that expands the kind of mystery idea of the novel because you're going, here's something grounded in reality like the law that uh -huh. we can all believe in and depend on. And yet even that doesn't it's, help us and it, it's, it's yeah, useless here. This is beyond the realm of what's normal. Um, it was really popular at the time. It was published in Dickens's magazine all the year round. And each day that a new issue was coming out, apparently crowds would gather around the office door to get the latest oh instalment of The Woman in White. That must have been so exciting. Yeah. And also gives you enough time till the next instalment to go over all of the yes. details. Yes. Well, well, apparently there were people who would lay bets on what was going to happen to <gasps> Laura Fairley. Or, and this, I feel like this reminds me of that bit when... Walter arrives after dark, right, and he hasn't seen any of the landscape around, and then wakes up the next morning, and he says, The sea opened up before me, joyously under the broad August sunlight, and the distant coast of Scotland fringed the horizon with its lines of melting blue. The view was such a surprise and such a change to me, after my weary London experience of brick-and-mortar landscape, that I seemed to burst into a new life and a new set of thoughts the moment I looked at it. That's such a nice extract because it gives that sense of a kind of openness and a fresh start. So you have yes. that idea already of something within Walter that's excited for change and ready for something new. Something fresh is Absolutely. coming. And we can actually see Scotland across uh, the Solway Firth. That's, that's incredible. Really, yes. it's you know it feels like we're right there on the spot. I was strolling along the lonely high road, idly wondering, I remember, what the Cumberland young ladies would look like when, in one moment, every drop of blood in my body was brought to a stop by the touch of a hand laid lightly and suddenly on my shoulder from behind me. I turned on the instant, with my fingers tightening round the handle of my stick. There, in the middle of the broad, bright high road, there as if it had that moment sprung out of the earth or dropped from the heaven, stood the figure of a solitary woman, dressed from head to foot in white garments, her face bent in grave inquiry on mine, 
her hand pointing to the dark cloud over London as I faced her. We were talking just now about how The Woman in White was published in instalments, and so he had to make that first instalment something that would catch the attention of readers and make them want to come back for more. And in some ways, the most memorable encounter in the book happens in that opening section, doesn't it? Well, it's an incredibly haunting moment, and I think is the moment which really sets it up as being a ghost story, because Walter is walking back, from having been on Hampstead Heath and he's in London and there's something particular about how he's feeling and then suddenly everything is silent and settling and he gets a hand on his shoulder and he turns around and there's this woman dressed completely head to toe in white. Yeah, there's so many questions about where she's come from. Mm. What was your experience of capturing that moment on camera? It was such an iconic moment and I'm playing Anne who is that ghostly figure to him and her experience is so different so for Walter she is the ghost but for me as Olivia playing Anne who has just escaped from an asylum where she's been kept for years that sense of fear and mistrust and freedom and also how scared she is being in this dark country road at night it's such a memorable image and such a recognizable fear that you think you're alone somewhere and you're you keep turning around to worrying someone's there and then suddenly there is someone standing just behind him. Absolutely, a terrifying um, woman all in white. It's yes. like all those ghost stories all in <laughs> yes, one. exactly. It's come true. Well, there's, and there's this story that um, the, his inspiration for that moment came from a real-life sort of escapade he found himself on with his brother and the painter John Everett Millet. And um, he and his brother were walking Millet back to his home when suddenly there was a kind of scream from a house nearby. And this is actually Millet's son recalling the story that his father told him. It was evidently the cry of a woman in distress. And while pausing to consider what they should do, the iron gate leading to the garden was dashed open, and from it came the figure of a young and very beautiful woman dressed in flowing white robes that shone in the moonlight. She seemed to float rather than to run in their direction. And on coming out of the three young men, she paused for a moment in an attitude of supplication and terror. Then, seeming to recollect herself, she suddenly moved on and vanished in the shadows cast upon the road. Millet goes on to say that um, they were all completely kind of stunned, but Wilkie Collins ran after this woman in white who disappeared into the night. And then it sounds like she was a woman called Caroline Graves, who became his... Well, to the outside world, she became known as his housekeeper, but it was essentially his mistress in a household that he set up. So there was a kind of uh, a sort of sexual aspect to this encounter with a mm. woman in white on the road there. I mean, but talking about Caroline Graves, I think one of the most bizarre things about Collins is how he set up these two households with Caroline and her daughter from a previous relationship. But then he later met a 19-year-old called Martha, set up another household with her. And when he was with her, he called himself Dawson. And they had three children together who all have the surname Dawson. And so he led these two sort of parallel lives, didn't marry either of Martha or mm. Caroline. And, and it's, it's rather sort of sad, actually, that when he met Martha, Caroline seems to have said, OK, well, I've had enough now. And she went off and Wilkie actually witnessed her marriage to another man. But then that seems to have fallen apart and she came back to him and really 
sort of stayed with him to the end of his life. And after he died, she tended his grave until she died six years later. And she's buried with him, Caroline. Oh. The, the original woman in white is there in the grave with him. And then Martha tended the grave until Martha died. So it's, they, I think it must have been a pretty uncomfortable, but somehow they managed to make this strange it's relationship She left work. and came back as well. That's Yeah, it's like she tried to escape and... Oh, and that's for whatever reason, it didn't work. Oh, these men, these men. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, gosh. I looked over the wide monotony of the seaside prospect, and the place in which we two had idled away the sunny hours was as lost to me as if I had never known it, as strange to me as if I stood already on a foreign shore. The empty silence of the beach struck cold to my heart. Wow, it's pretty striking landscape here, isn't it? It's amazing looking across the water to the mountains of Scotland. You can see why you'd be inspired to set a novel up here, because it's really dramatic landscape. You feel a bit vulnerable here as well, don't you? You're not kind of... There's no protection. I mean, as we're feeling right now from this gale-force wind we're standing in. Uh, yeah, it feels really exposed and also the mountains in the distance feel like they could protect you but they're just out of reach somehow and over the water and over the water and actually the tide is quite far out at the moment but that kind of stretch of sand beyond it goes on and on and on yes yes it's rather lonely let's talk a little bit about laura and marion her half sister because really i think it's their bond which is the central linchpin of the plot and it's what gets those two characters through the plot the fact that they will not be separated from each other and that they they love each other so much well how would you describe marion halcombe <laughs> well the description of marion that we first get is through walter's eyes and he just mm. sees her silhouette and it's such an extraordinary piece i'll just read out the description because it's it's incredible Never was the fair promise of a lovely figure more strangely and startlingly belied by the face and head that crowned it. The lady's complexion was almost swarthy, and the dark down on her upper lip was almost a moustache. She had a large, firm, masculine mouth and jaw, prominent, piercing, resolute brown eyes, and thick, coal-black hair growing unusually low down on her forehead. I mean, it's it's an awful description. And also he kind of falls in love with her figure, and then she turns around and he even comments in the novel that she's an ugly woman. Yes, yes. Which is just extraordinary how visual he is. And it's interesting that straight after Marion's been introduced like that, later on that morning, Walter then meets Laura, who's described as kind of the polar opposite, like sort of perfect beauty. And yet it's interesting, isn't it, that it's Marion's voice that we hear in the book. And we never, we never get Laura's own testimony. And he picks a particular visual description of them and then flips it almost. So, Marion, you're given this impression and then you're let into her world through her diary entries. And for me, reading it, I was so captivated by her. I was carried through the story with her. And it was just amazing to kind of have that female voice within the novel because it's completely surrounded by all these other men. And Marion makes choices independently because she doesn't have money so because she's she's free then 
in a way that Laura isn't because Laura's tied to this kind of dowry that she gets when she comes of age whereas Marion gets to behave in a manner that no one can control and there's something so appealing in that for the time as well. That's such a good point but actually Laura's inheritance is her curse as well it's why she's hunted by these different men and one of the main drivers of the plot in the first section of the book is the fact that Laura is engaged to this baronet called Sir Percival Glyde and she's engaged him because on his deathbed her father sort of blessed this engagement and so she feels that she has to go through with this even though we're immediately suspicious when Percival Glyde comes on the scene. He's incredibly charming, but there's just something wrong, and we know it straight away. And little things like he walks into a room and the dog, who's normally friendly to everyone, just kind of snarls and runs off <laughs> to a corner, even though he's sort of so cheery and smiley. And the first act of the book really climaxes with her marriage to Sir Percival Glyde, and then they go off to the continent for a honeymoon and she's separated from Marion for the first time. There's a shift in Laura when she comes back from her honeymoon and I think there's this chasm between her and Marion of time and it comes out because of her experience with Percival and the things that he said and, and these horrible remarks about not being intimate with him or not being able to or the fact that they'll never have children together or even that he's previously abused her physically. Yeah, it's... In some ways, it's quite hard to read some of those sections. And there's no getting around the fact that Laura is cruelly abused by men. And there's that particularly brutal scene when her husband, Sir Percival, is trying to get her to sign a document. And although we don't know what's in it, and Laura doesn't know what's in it, we have an absolute suspicion that it's going to be something that's not going to do her any good and all she asks is to have it explained to her what it is she's signing her name to he flies into this kind of terrifying violent rage Mm. she overhears Percival saying at one point or do they pass a monument or something or a gravestone and he says you'll be paying for it with your money when you die she then understands that her marriage is about money I think on some level it's a transaction absolutely And, and I don't think she can share that pain with someone who loves her so much like Marion and so this moment of the signing it's the one bit of control that Laura still has is her name and her signature and we know that there's something terrible yes. if she does and sign. And we're willing her to hold her nerve and not Absolutely. to sign that. And that's a real that moment of paper. strength. She's, it is, she's gone through right. something and she doesn't. She refuses yeah. to and walks out. There's an inner strength there that we don't get access to through an immediate direct kind of relationship with her but from my perspective exploring her as a character was really great especially with you know our contemporary hats on of going why would someone behave like this what drives you to it and your pledge to your father to marry someone I think I'm sure is still strong in many ways and bonds between people even now and so you can understand why she does what she does, but she does push the boundaries as much as she can, and Marion takes them further. So I feel like they're trying to make progress at the time. You can see the steps that they're trying to pave for kind of women today. We're a few minutes outside Allenby, and we're standing outside Christchurch Parish 
Church, which was established in 1744. So this would have been here when Wilkie Collins and Charles Dickens stayed nearby. And it's a, it's a red brick, quite a plain-looking building, I guess quite typical of the churches around here. And it's surrounded on all sides by a large churchyard with a low brick wall and lots and lots of headstones at all different angles and and all looking rather ornate but rather battered by the sea wind. It's funny how many important scenes happen in Limeridge churchyard in the book. There's the second dramatic meeting with Anne Catherick quite near the beginning. There's Laura's marriage to Percival Glyde and then there's a very dramatic later scene, which maybe for spoiler reasons we shouldn't um, talk about too much, but yes. that also happens right here in the churchyard. And I feel like this is so similar to the description of the book and so close to where Wilkie was staying. I feel like this must have been in his mind when he was back in London and writing those scenes. Should we talk about that scene where he meets Anne Catherick again at the grave of... Mrs. Fairley, which is a white marble cross. And I'm just looking around the graveyard now. There are several white crosses we can see. So it could, I mean, we could imagine it's any one of these that uh, mm. this scene happens at. What are your impressions of Anne Catherick, what she's been through and what that's done to her as a character? Well, this is the second time that we've encountered Anne Catherick yeah. in the story through Walter's eyes and his perspective. And it's not at night. It's not on this road alone. Actually, he hears the voices of her with someone else. So it bases her in a reality that we didn't have before. But Anne is hypersensitive. I, I saw her as along with Laura, and that's what kind of connects them. And in this graveyard, I think it's a moment of stillness for her compared to the noise and the darkness of the asylum which she has managed to escape from. And from what I read, it sounds like it was a really topical idea to have a character who was in an asylum under false pretenses mm. because there was this spate of cases in the late 1850s where people were wrongfully put into insane asylums and there was this kind of sort of fear running round Britain that people might get put away for no reason and and it's that really terrifying thing isn't it but uh, as soon as you're deemed mad by society nothing you can say can be persuasive because everything can be put down to the fact that you're mad and you can see why it was a chilling and and attractive idea for a novelist like Wilkie Collins to put that into his book and it was so easily abused by people as a way of getting rid of what they deemed as being a problem within their life yes. And when I was looking into Anne Catherick and what it must have been like to be in an asylum at the time, I found this remarkable list of the reasons why people had been put into asylums, particularly women. And I have a couple of them here. Oh, yeah. Oh, go on, yeah. They're, um, well, they're for admissions from uh, 1850 to 1889. Oh, OK. So and exactly the time we're talking about. The time about. we're talking about. I mean, the list is enormous, but I'll just pick out a couple yeah. that are extraordinary. So these are reasons why people might be reasons put Reasons why people were put in. Novel reading. <laughs> <laughs> Overstudy of religion. Parents were cousins. Kicked in the head by a horse. Epileptic fits. Women trouble, which I think is extraordinary because that 
insinuates could be like, anything. Anything could yeah. be anything. In the way that hysterics was not a real disease, but it was just diagnosed for anything that was to do with women. Really. That's it. Exactly. God. Exactly. It's awful. Domestic trouble, domestic habits, grief, greediness, spinal irritation. Oh my goodness. Snuff eating for two years. I mean, <laughs> well, that probably would send you mad. <laughs> Marriage of a son, laziness. I mean, it just goes on and on. Yeah. It's so scary. It's just, you could pick anything, it seems, and lock someone away. And so you can see how easy it was for them Mm. to take this girl and trap her. I think it's so clear to see what Wilkie Collins took from this landscape to inspire the woman in white. But it's interesting that Wilkie Collins himself suffered terribly from gout in his life and particularly when he was working on The Moonstone, his other most famous novel a few years later, he became heavily dependent on laudanum um, which was opium dissolved in alcohol and you could get it over the counter incredibly easily under all sorts of uh, sort of cheerful sounding brand names and he became eventually addicted to laudanum and I'll just read out this description of uh, uh, Matthew Sweet puts in his introduction to the Penguin edition. When Francis Carr Beard became Collins's doctor in 1859, he immediately began to prescribe the drug to him as a gout remedy. Ten years later, Collins was a confirmed addict, confessing to his friends that he suffered visions in which he was menaced by ghosts, a mysterious doppelganger, and a monstrous green woman who sprouted a pair of tusks. At a dinner party, the eminent surgeon Sir William Ferguson told Collins that he was downing enough of the drug each day to kill everyone present at his table. Oh my goodness. So serious <laughs> levels of, of drug taking here. Wow. And, and that doppelganger, apparently he used to see himself sitting in the room with him and he would describe him sort of as the other Wilkie who would sort of sit with him. But, you know, I, I think that's so interesting when we're talking about this book, which has strange ghostly female figures in it, which is full of doppelgangers as well. There's two heroines, two villains, two houses, and particularly the actual doppelgangers of Laura and Anne. I feel sure that this kind of cocktail of experiences which he had up here and experiences he had in his own mind was all going together to create this book. That makes it all the more chilling that someone experienced actually seeing someone else, a kind of version of themselves, and putting that into the story makes you feel... Like it's even more real somehow. Well, maybe we should um, get out of the coal and go and talk uh, about some of the ghost stories that um, may have inspired Wilkie Collins and The Woman in White. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Well, we're back in the ship hotel now. It's after dark. And since we're approaching the witching hour. Olivia, I wonder, to what extent would you say The Woman in White is a ghost story? I think there's definitely a haunting feel in the story throughout, whether that's the deeds that people play on each other, the mistaken identities or the things that are hidden in wills and the secrets and lies. They feel like they're bedded in that feeling of a ghost story, even though actually, in truth, what's happening to the people in it or the women who you think of as the ghosts is very real, so we shouldn't forget that. I think that's so right, yeah. I think even at the time, Willie Collins and Charles Dickens were very famous for writing ghost stories. It's interesting that in their account of their tour of the North, the lazy tour of Two Idle Apprentices, they include two ghost stories in that. And the weird thing is that if you were to kind of overlay those two stories, you basically get the plot of The Woman in White. So the first one, which Collins writes, he later anthologized, he called it The Dead Hand. And it's basically the story of a guy who is looking for somewhere to stay at night. The only place he can find to stay is in this room in a cheap pub. And it turns out the reason no one else wants to stay there is because there's a corpse in the other bed in the room. So he's, he's sharing a room with the corpse. And it's lying there, the candle's going down, he doesn't want to lose light. And then the candle does go out, and he quickly lights it again. And when it lights, the corpse's hand has moved and is out no. of the curtain. <laughs> and, it's, and it's the idea that it's going to keep moving each time the light goes out. But then, in fact, the story takes a complete turn, and the, the corpse revives. In fact, it was alive. So there's logic it was, behind There's it. logic behind it. And it turns out that the corpse is a kind of doppelganger for the guy in the room and it turns out that this is an illegitimate brother he never knew about and the illegitimate brother has always been in love with the same woman that the guy is engaged to so it's, it's this sort of suddenly turns into this kind of strange tragic reunion of two long lost relatives and, and it goes off in a different direction so that's the first story and then Dickens tells a story which I think he later called the ghost chamber which is set in this haunted hotel in Doncaster and it's quite exciting because uh, Dickens and Collins are sitting in this room and then Dickens describes this man coming in and Collins uh, falling asleep. And then it turns out the man is a ghost telling the story about how he came a cropper. And there's this one really scary moment where he describes this young bride that he married in order to kill her so he'd get her inheritance. He just kills her by abuse, basically, by like psychological abuse. He literally like looks at her and tells her to die until she dies. There's this it's absolutely horrific. And there's this scene which could be from a horror film where 
she's on the point of death and she has one last sort of attempt to sort of escape. And it says, uh, there were spots of ink upon the bosom of her white dress and they made her face look whiter and her eyes look larger as she nodded her head. Paler in the pale light, more colourless than ever in the leaden dawn, he saw her coming, trailing herself along the floor towards him, a white wreck of hair and dress and wild eyes, pushing itself on by an irresolute and bending hand. Honestly, that was, that was just awful. And what did you say about him staring at her and saying to yeah, her... He just literally stares at her and says, die, die, until eventually she just gives up. And I kind of feel like that's what... That's basically what Glyde That's is what doing. Glyde yeah. is doing to her, even how he ends up speaking so little to her. He's trying to make her invisible. Yeah, so he's almost sort of turning her into a kind of living ghost while she's alive. Also, what's interesting, even in Dickens' writing, say, with someone like Miss Havisham and things, there's that idea of it's a real person, but the past is haunting them and consuming them, and so they become this kind of ghost-like figure. And it's kind of the same with, with Anne, in a way, or most of the characters within the novel, something from the past comes in and eats them from the inside. Yes. And terror kind of reigns. The men in this novel are pretty terrible bunch. Either they're hypochondriac, pathetic characters like Mr. Fairley, or they're not there, like Walter, who's away for crucial parts of a novel. Off he goes on his trip. Yeah, on his, <laughs> yes, his, his gap year <laughs> nice in for South him. America. Yeah, get some sunshine. Yeah. Or they're genuinely malicious and dangerous. But I think the most extraordinary character of this book is Count Fosco. What's your view of Count Fosco? I was so taken aback by the description of him that Wilkie Collins gives. This hugely, enormously large, rotund man who delights in eating as many sweets as he wants and indulges in everything, in cakes and in the colour of his clothes and in music and singing and, and animals pets, yeah. the mice that crawl around him and he speaks to the animals like he speaks to humans really and also with dogs in one moment how he can look at them and control them and everyone in the room knows that he could do that with them and there's a lovely, well not lovely but there's an extract which shows that really well um, when Marion writes what of the count This in two words. He looks like a man who could tame anything. If he had married a tigress instead of a woman, he would have tamed the tigress. If he had married me, I should have made his cigarettes as his wife does. I should have held my tongue when he looked at me as she holds hers. I am almost afraid to confess it, even to these secret pages. The man has interested me, has attracted me, has forced me to like him. And that's Marion writing there, and that someone who seems like no one could control her, but completely her world is turned around by this man who seems grotesque, but draws her in. Yeah, that is. I think that's the scariest thing about him. And kind of coming back to that idea of the ghost story, this force within people that can take over and feels like you have no control anymore. And whether that's love or that's fear or there's something which overpowers you, which I think is kind of part of the sensation or the idea of a ghost story. We come up inland from Maryport and we're standing at the end of a country lane called Ewanrig Lonning. 
and uh, it doesn't look totally promising, but let's head along it and see what we can find. Because mm. it feels like tucked away somehow, is it? I mean, yeah. there, but this part well, I think even the old, felt... It would have been the only big sort of house around here, and people used to come... I think it was quite a done thing that you'd go and visit big houses in an area when you were travelling through it. And they were kind of open to come in. And yeah, yeah, oh yeah. Like, do you remember in Pride and Prejudice when Elizabeth Bennet just goes to visit Pemberley? Oh, yeah. I think if you were a sort of gentle person, you could just turn up and have a little talk. <laughs> They're like, um, we are, <laughs> yes. we're cleaning at the moment. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> Gosh, so it's up on a, so we're definitely up on a ridge, aren't we? Maybe that's where Limo yes. Ridge comes from. Ah, of course, yes. It's this structure up ahead. Oh, it's which that looks one like there. Ours. I'll show you. It was a quiet autumn afternoon. The waning sun was shining faintly through the thin white clouds. The air was warm and still. The peacefulness of the lonely country was overshadowed and saddened by the influence of the falling year. I reached the moor. I stood again on the brow of the hill. I looked on along the path, and there were the familiar garden trees in the distance, the clear sweeping semicircle of the drive, the high white walls of Limeridge House. We're standing close now to Ewanrig Hall, or the remains of it. We're by the shell of this decrepit, rather sad-looking structure. And it's thought that this was the house that Wilkie Collins based Limeridge House on. Certainly the situation is very similar, wouldn't you say? We're raised up a bit above the local village, which is down in the valley, and we're looking right out over the sea. And you can understand why they were drawn to capturing nature when they're art lessons, yes. because it's just immediately all around you, such a variety of landscapes. Absolutely. And of course, when Collins and Dickens were passing by, the house looked very different to how it looks now. Look, I've got a picture here of what it looked like in the 19th century. Gosh, the size and scale of it is really how you imagine from the descriptions in the novel and also with the white brick and everything. And it looks like the building was, what, about four storeys, would you say? Yes. High with two wings on either side, and it's incredibly grand and large with this beautiful white stone and two sets of chimneys. And as a young child growing up, when Marion goes to... Paris to study and Laura's left alone it must have been incredibly isolating and something about how nature forms you as a person but also the history of this building and I just must do things to your imagination being alone yeah it does feel sad doesn't it but I guess one of the reasons Collins must have been attracted to this building is that it has this very kind of mysterious history it was built in the 18th century and was the home of the Christian family, who actually came from the Isle of Man, but it's the same Christian family that uh, Fletcher Christian, the mutineer on the bounty, came from. He came from this family that lived here. And it seems like this house has attracted strange stories over the years. Certainly the last member of the Christian family who lived here was a man called Henry Christian, who died in 1859, the year that the woman in white came out. He and his wife apparently had started abandoning the rest of the house and were living in one little corner of Ewanrig. And after he died, she apparently went mad living here on her own and was eventually put into an asylum. 
My goodness, and I wonder what reason they found I know from what the reason list I know from that list. <laughs> yes, true. Yeah, who knows? But it certainly was associated with sort of eerie stories and, and for the rest of the 19th century it was described somewhere as a deserted and decaying mansion um, said to be so haunted that no tenant could be found with enough temerity to take it. And there are tales of these local ghost stories told about this place and, and I'm hoping we might be able to meet someone who can tell us a bit more about those stories. We're just coming round the back of Ewanrig Hall now to Ewanrig Hall Gardens, where we're going to meet a lady called Doris Riley, who has written a book about the history of Ewanrig Hall. Good morning. Hello, Doris. Hello. Hello. Oh, you'll be doing fine. Not at oh, all. Oh, no, I don't want to get you. I do. What's your family connection with Ewanrig? My family connection is my great, great granddad acquired the hall and gardens to look after in 1866. So they were working in the hall in the 19th century? Caretakers, like, right. and gardeners, and the produce off the land, while they were all flitting around Isle of Man and wherever they wanted to go. They were just leaving people in charge. My great-grandfather bought the gardens, and my granddad was the last big occasion, his wedding, Reception was in there. Oh, really? oh, wonderful. So I have, we have got a bit of history yeah. in Absolutely. So mm. we do know what it was like, and it was beautiful. It should never have been pulled down. No. It yeah. was a fire. It had destroyed half of it. Just well, recently? It was just in... a fire. Well, it's had three fires. Oh, really? Mm. But it made a mess of it, and our family living there, they said, you'll have to come out. It's not safe. So meanwhile, my granddad was building... This cottage for the, the owner to kind of stop in here while he was viewing his estate, 600 acres. And uh, this cottage was built with oh. the remnants of that hall. So I've got a lot so of... You're, so you are living in the remains of, of you and Rick Hall. Hall. <laughs> oh, that's so that's fantastic. the interest that I've got that nobody else is interested <laughs> in on me. <laughs> let that go. Yes. <laughs> And so one of the things we're fascinated by is that we've heard that there were ghost stories told about you and Rick. I'm, when I'm a bit Connors. frightened to mention that ghost. Oh. <laughs> well, what, tell us a story about the Scottish king who saw... The Scottish king right. who killed that little lassie's father to get that place. So tell us a story. What happened? He was coming from Seoul and he was only a young king. And he spotted that one big property was on its own, just fields round about. And he said, that's where I'm going to live. This was wild, really. We were all wild folk that lived here. Nobody wanted to know past Manchester. <laughs> They're all a wild bunch. <laughs> so with the Vikings being here in seven, what, seven, eight, seven or something, they used to pinch the wives and the young daughters, rape them and then kill them. They weren't interested in them and all that. So it made people of standing, more or less, we've got to have safe houses to put our wives and children in. And on the walls themselves, they used to have secret little doorways in. Nobody would even suspect you were actually going in like a tunnel mm -hmm. because they were that thick and just slid them in there. It's sad, really. And this man, you know, he put her in, his daughter... And she was in, and he said, don't come out. 
and he was fighting with this king and all his men and he got killed and she heard that. Poor little thing, instead of staying where she was, she could have maybe come out at the later days after they'd gone, you know. She come out and he was saying to her, I want to make you my queen because I'm going to live here. And all this, you know, well, she was shocked seeing her dad. She grabbed her dad's sword, so it must have been the sword that he was fighting with, and uh, she plunged it into this young king's chest, and that made him worse than ever, like, and he said, put her back where she's just come from and seal it up. She said, I'll haunt you every day of your life and your offspring. And this is the cries, and that's where I think through this story, maybe, I don't know, but maybe originated from oh, that. Spooky. And, the, and this story... And he it, built, the Scottish king, he built, I couldn't believe when I've read some of the history, there was 90 rooms. He was building bedroom after bedroom after bedroom mm-hmm. to go in a different one each night because he still hear her screaming. Fancy stealing it up and leaving. But um, this story's come down a long time, hasn't it? Very. Ninth century. So there's always well, been a ghost story there, but was it that? Well, who knows if it inspired Wilkie Collins, but quite possibly it did. Yeah. It it, it, well, he was here. I stayed at Alamy. Come in, Robert. You can sit down and listen to me. It's only my husband. <laughs> <laughs> he was here and he stayed at Allenby, actually. That's right. And my mother had uh, an autographed copy from Wilkie Collins. <gasps> and what did my brother do? He loaned it out to somebody and he never got it back. Oh, oh. no. <laughs> the people he worked for, they said they'd mislead it. Now, this is going back a lot of years, and he was in big trouble from my mother for a long time. Oh, God. <sighs> I bet. He really was. <laughs> well, thank you, Doris. It's been such a pleasure to... <laughs> such a lovely pleasure to meet you both. Thank you. Olivia, it's been such a pleasure wandering around these uh, cold and bleak locations on the Cumbrian <laughs> coast with you. To finish, I wonder, what do you think is the secret of the Women in White? Why is it still so exciting and attractive 150 years after it was written? There's something very special about being in this location mm-hmm. and actually being in Cumbria, because when we were filming, we were filming in and around Belfast, but actually right. seeing what Wilkie Collins saw and experienced in his vision of where Limeridge was set, it's, it's really special to be here. And um, that's ignited my love of the story again. And I think it's a book that I'll always come back to through my life because there's so much in it about how we change as people through our experience and that kind of understanding about yourself through what life throws at you and also the love and bonds between people in spite of all of this adversity and I think kind of looking at it with our contemporary heads and attitudes you want to see and believe in the motivations of well for me particularly these two women who were so strong and courageous in spite of everything they survive and they've been oppressed and squashed by these terrible men and yet they continue 
And you're carried along through the story with them at every turn and every step because of the way that he's crafted it with the mystery and all the plots and devices and, and these incredibly illustrated characters who are all very, very different. And, um, and there's also so much detail. So every time I read it now, I'm, I'm drawn to something else and it's a real gift of a book, I think. Wonderful. That's, I can't think of a better way to finish off this episode. Thank you, Olivia. Thanks, Henry. Many thanks to Olivia Vinnell, Doris Riley, and the Ship Hotel in Allenby, and to our kind partners, Penguin Classics. I'm Henry Elliott, the producer is Andrea Rangecroft, and the music is by Don Gould. If you enjoyed this episode of On the Road, please spread the word and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, I'll leave you with this. When Wilkie Collins died, he left a sealed envelope with the inscription for his grave. You can visit him in Kensal Green Cemetery in London. He has a plain white cross with the words, Wilkie Collins, author of The Woman in White. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.